0: So we continue the story now of Elijah and the widow. <clears throat> so listen with me for this follow-up story in verses 17 to 24. So after the son of the woman, the mistress of the house became ill. His illness was so severe that there was no breath left within him. She then said to Elijah, What have you against me, O man of God? You have come to me to bring my sin to remembrance and cause the death of my son. But Elijah said to her, Give me your son. He took him from from her bosom, carried him up into the upper chamber where he was lodging, and laid him on his own bed. He cried out to the Lord. Oh, Lord, my God, have you brought calamity upon the widow with whom I am staying by killing her son? Then he stretched himself upon the child three times and cried out to the Lord, Oh, Lord, my God, let this child's life come into him again. The Lord listened to the voice of Elijah. The life of the child came into the boy again, and he revived. Elijah took the child, brought him down from the upper chamber into the house, and gave him to his mother. Then Elijah said, See, your son is alive. So the woman said to Elijah, Now I know that you are a man of God, and that the word of the Lord in your mouth is truth. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. O Lord, in this life, we are searching for truth. We are searching for a recognition of your face. We are searching in one another, O Lord, and in this word today. So be our wisdom and our way, be our insight and our courage. Help us to see you anew through this word. And may the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight. Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. It seems that there are few heroes of the Bible, particularly the Hebrew scriptures, who loom quite as large as the prophet Elijah. Recall, perhaps, the Sunday school classroom of your youth or those that you have seen on TV decked out with colorful images of these characters, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, Sarah, Hagar, and Ishmael, Joseph in his technicolor dream coat, because that always adds a pop of color, Moses, both shoeless before a burning bush, and on Mount Sinai, wind-blown hair, commandments in hand, Miriam with her tambourine, King David, of course, Ruth and Naomi clinging to one another, Jonah in the belly of the whale, Esther, perhaps even the great judge Deborah. But there, Elijah the Tishbite, the troubler of Israel, as his nemesis King Ahab once sneered to him, there Elijah is, mocking the prophets of Baal listening for the voice of God from a cave, mentoring his protege, Elisha, ascending gloriously into heaven on a flaming chariot. Years ago, when I had the opportunity to teach religious education in primary schools in Belfast, Elijah was the only prophet featured in the curriculum. Let me tell you, I spent hours on the paper model of that fiery chariot, to tell the story, it was a hit. It is Elijah, the great prophet, for whom our Jewish siblings hold a seat each annual Passover celebration, setting aside an extra cup of wine and keeping the door open, should he choose to come this time to come back, the fulfillment of centuries of waiting. It is Elijah, the great forebear of Jesus in our Christian tradition prophet and miracle worker, friend to widows and raiser of the dead, with an ongoing open line to God whom the New Testament authors most pull upon to tie together this long narrative of salvation? Yes, Elijah looms large in our shared story. And yet, the trouble we always run up against with these heroes of the faith with these lauded tales of singular heroes in almost every case, is that every story inevitably is more complicated than we boil it down to be. Every person more nuanced, every situation containing so many other faces that we have easily blurred in our desire to focus in. As we refine and curate, as we Photoshop and perfect As we create heroes and heroines from human beings, we forget that they are human, and while their bootstraps may be pulled well up, they did not achieve that entirely on their own. We forget that it is God, and God alone, who can act wholly independently from others. Yet, very intentionally, they choose not to even— 99% of the time. Surely, then, this is the case in the story of Elijah and the widow of Zarephath. As we lean into the text this morning, it is immediately on the heels of Elijah's pronouncement to the newly married King Ahab and Queen Jezebel. King Ahab of Israel and Queen Jezebel of Sidon. You see, they were worshipers of Baal. A lower G God thought to control the rain and the dew, and clearly that did not sit well with the one and only sovereign God of Israel. So we are introduced for the first time to Elijah when he is on the lamb, running from the monarchs who knew only his face and his voice connected to the news that the drought would continue ending not at Baal's hand, nor any other, for it is the God of Israel alone who saw to creation's habits. It is God alone who gives life. It is God alone who is worthy of worship. I thought we covered that already, God says, but apparently you need a reminder. So even before the widow, it was to the wadi on the outskirts of Israel's territory that Elijah fled. There he relied on some water from a stream and ravens whom God sent flying in meat twice a day. But wadis dry up, ravens perhaps aren't that consistent, and so it was time to move again we see from very early on, God was inclining a wisdom to this prophet that he would not sustain in this work alone. So deeper into non-Israelite territory he was sent, this time to a widow who he met at a particularly rough time in her own life, for the drought in Israel did not stop at those nations' borders. Disasters really do, rarely do observe the boundaries that we create. Witness a world food crisis amplified by Russia's invasion of Ukraine. Witness as small island nations experience land and lives and livelihoods lost to rising waters, consequences they reap from habits we can't quit witness the constant flow of migrant crises as the presumptive actions of one nation leave others in tatters for generations. No, the drought did not stop in the land that Ahab ruled. It bled over so that God drew together the one who had declared it and two who were about to die because of it. Because nothing could go wrong there right? This past week, our eldest daughter, Maggie, was at sleepaway camp for the very first time. As we packed her sleeping bag and her mess kit, her flashlight, and five days' worth of clothing, all with her name on them, many of my own camp memories came to the fore. The antics, the cabin mates, the food, the games including one in particular, trust falls. Have you ever done one of these? They are terrifying. (laughs) One person stands up on a platform, crosses their arms over their chest, closes their eyes, and at the signal falls backwards. (laughs) The plan is, of course, that the people in the group are situated there to catch you as you fall. The purpose is clearly in the name to build trust among the group, presumably based on the fact that they did not let you break your back. Try this with a group of any age and let me be clear, there are many other and as effective or more ways to build trust among a group (laughs) that do not involve the distinct possibility of a trip to the emergency room. Maybe Elijah was distracted or self-absorbed, maybe it was the consequence of having only talked to ravens for a while, but Elijah charged in with this widow, expecting immediately one thing, too much. Prefacing the Syrophoenician woman who challenged Jesus to see her at the very least as worthy as the dogs who ate the crumbs from under the table, the widow took Elijah to task. Now, when Elijah first declared this drought before Ahab, he did so, saying, as the Lord, the God of Israel, lives before whom I stand. Perhaps having heard these words now repeated around the dry wells of her village, this widow had no allegiance to this God of Israel, likely worshiped Baal herself was experiencing famine based on the choices of power far removed from her, so she took his words and spat them back at him. As the Lord your God lives, I have nothing. What little I do have, I am going to go do with what I can with it, give it to my son so that we might eat it and die. It is truly a wonder that the story goes on to tell us that she went along with this anyway, that she gave up that precious last bit of meal and dressed the priceless drops of oil. But she did. I suppose we do a lot in the desperate and desperation we have to preserve life, even if it is to take a gamble on a stranger and his God, just in case it might be worth it? It may not come as any surprise to you, but if we need a hero in this story, personally, she would be my choice. But the truth is that they needed each other. This story at the very beginning of Elijah's illustrious career, this prophet of the Most High God, He is reliant upon a foreign, idol-worshiping widow with only enough to get by for one more meal. This mother, who is desperate to extend the life of herself and her son, is reliant upon this strange man whose words and actions make little sense, but at least they point the way to hope. All of this in its rawness and complexity, this should be the image on those Sunday school classroom walls, the ones that witness to the capacity of our hearts to break for one another. And in this story, because when it feels like everything has already gone wrong and so it should get better, it doesn't. We know this as the truth of our lives, the resolution does not always come. Sometimes it gets worse. And in this case, the son whose mother had brought him into life and protected him at least once from death, she faced her worst fear again as the life breath goes out of him. And Elijah, having come to know her, to rely upon her, to have broken bread with her, to have been in their home. I think here we see Elijah changed. He's no longer distracted or expectant. He's desperate, praying, keening, pleading over this boy, much as we imagine the mother was. For again, she had entrusted her son's life to this man and to his God. We might come to the end of all of this wondering if God has just set up some kind of cruel, high-stakes trust fall for all of them. Wondering what happens if we decide not to play, if we ask questions or hesitate or despair or accuse do we turn around to realize no one is there? But the words that finally feel true to the widow, I think, say, do not be afraid. For God does not work out salvation through high-risk gambling or low-stakes camp games, though I'm certain that God loves some camp games. No, the God of Israel acts with saving grace, nudging, pulling, insisting, binding us up with one another, the people and the situations, the resources and the hope, often urgent faith that has the capacity to open us, to change us, to deepen in us compassion for one another. God is at work enlarging the boundaries of our heart, wrote the Reverend Dr. Howard Thurman in a meditation that I return to again and again and again as a reminder of the hard and steady work of God upon me, upon the church, upon humanity, moving us from hardened self-reliance into vulnerability out of perfection-seeking, and into the vulnerable and beautiful mess of kingdom work. God is making a room in my heart for compassion, Thurman continues. The awareness that where my life begins is where your life begins. The awareness that the sensitiveness to your needs cannot be separated from the sensitiveness to my needs. The awareness that the joys of my heart are never mine alone, nor are my sorrows. I want my boundaries to remain fixed, he says, that I may be at rest. But even now, God's work in me is ever the same. God is at work enlarging the boundaries of my heart. It is on the strength of our compassion for one another, our willingness to share both joy and sorrow, our ability to be sensitive to needs beyond our own that we can eat for many days. In fact, it is how we sustain faith for a lifetime. We don't always want it. We don't always trust that God is capable or present in the hard stretches when our hearts are dry and breaking and desperate, we certainly don't always trust one another, nor the stranger in our midst. It is easier to keep those heart boundaries rigid rather than run the risk of the heartbreak. But on this Lord's Day, come again as it does each week, when we gather to worship and to eat together— We are urged again, same as we do each time we enact this feast, to try anyway. This morning we have talked about it a lot, but we are excited to bless this new ministry of First Place Swarthmore. And should we, in doing this, allow our boundaries to expand? I think we'll be amazed For it will not be in our actions alone, our generosity, our goodwill or intentions. This is not what will carry the ministry of First Place Swarthmore, but it will be our willingness to be changed and grown as we witness the ways God reveals herself through those we will come to know. As we continue to spend time reflecting on the whys of our faith, you will find a basket with cards, and you are invited to use this now as you reflect on this question, who is God working through in your life to enlarge the boundaries of your heart? We are calling this a personal affirmation of faith because it forms the beginning of our response to scripture and the word proclaimed. So I invite you now to be open to the spirits moving within you and to consider for these moments, who is God working through to enlarge the boundaries of our heart? At the end of this, you will be invited to share this in the offering basket if you wish, or if you are joining us online, please share this with your pastors in an email if you'd wish.